Shall we pray? Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to call you Father. We thank you for the awesome opportunity that we have of coming together once again to open your word and understand the message that you have for us at this awesome period in human history. Father, we cannot understand your word without divine help. And that's why we come before your throne in humility, expressing our need of wisdom from on high. We ask, Father, that you will bless us by your presence through the ministry of the angels, that you will make things absolutely clear to each one of us. And we thank you, Father, for your presence and for hearing our prayer because we come to your throne boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by reminding all of you who are present here that the 70-week prophecy is the smaller portion of the prophecy of the 2300 days. In other words, the 2300 days are the complete prophecy and the 70 weeks are cut off from the prophecy of the 2300 days. The 70 weeks are the first portion of the prophecy of the 2300 days. I'd like to begin by reading the prophecy of the 70 weeks as it is written in Daniel chapter 9 and verses 25 through 27. Daniel chapter 9 and verses 25 through 27. Immediately after Gabriel comes back and says to Daniel, understand the mare. He goes on to speak immediately about the 70 weeks. The 70 weeks are related to the mare. They help explain, in other words, the time factor of the 2300 days. And so we find in Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, not only to build, but to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, that is the prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, this is the last week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes what? Desolate. Don't forget two key words. It uses the word, on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This is the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks and now we want to interpret the meaning of this magnificent prophecy. We're not going to be able to finish our study in the lecture today. We're actually going to study two parts of the 70 weeks. 
Today, we are going to study up to the point of the cutting off of the Messiah. And then, in our lecture tomorrow, we are going to deal with the remaining portion of the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So let's begin at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, where it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Question. Is there a beginning point to the 70-week prophecy? Yes, it says from. Is there an ending point to the first 69 weeks, at least, of the 70-year prophecy? 70-week prophecy. Absolutely, because it says from to. So there is a clearly defined beginning point and what? An ending point. Now, it's interesting to notice the word command from the going forth of the command. That word command is used a little bit earlier in Daniel chapter 9. It's actually used in verse 23, where the Bible tells us that God gave the command to Gabriel to explain the mare to Daniel. In other words, what we have here is a decree or an order or a command. Now you notice that this command contemplates two things. Number one, it contemplates the idea of restoring Jerusalem and also of what? Building Jerusalem. Now I don't have time to get into all of the details on this, but they are not the same thing. They are related one to another, but they're not the same. Restoring and building are two separate things, although they are related. Now, in order to understand what it means to restore and build Jerusalem, we not need to understand what is meant by Jerusalem. Now, we usually think of Jerusalem as a city composed of buildings and walls and a temple. But Jerusalem means much more than that. Jerusalem not only means the physical city composed of buildings and walls, it also refers to the social, religious, and political order of the city. The institutions, the political and the religious institutions of the city. That is to say, Jerusalem means the commerce, the rulers, the magistrates, the judges, and the civil and the religious laws. Now, it is a fact that Jerusalem lost its sovereignty not when the city was destroyed. It lost its sovereignty in the year 605 when King Nebuchadnezzar came and he took all of the royalty and all of the princes and all of the rulers away to Babylon from Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem lost its political autonomy. In other words, now the city belonged to someone else, and not only that, the institutions by which the city had functioned came to an end because there were no legitimate rulers in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, let's notice 2 Kings 24, verses 14 through 16, where we find this idea of what is meant by Jerusalem. Jerusalem does not mean only the physical city. It means 
the city composed of all of its magistrates, its rulers, its business people, its military leaders, etc. Now notice 2 Kings chapter 24 and verses 14 through 16. It says here, speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem. Now I've always wondered how he could carry Jerusalem into captivity. He must have had some pretty heavy carts to be able to do that. What is meant when it says that he carried all Jerusalem into captivity? Is it talking about the city or is it talking about the leaders of the city, the political and the commercial and the military leaders? Let's read it. It continues saying, Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, notice, all the mighty men of valor, these are the, the warriors, the, the military, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, do you notice that Jerusalem is used in two different ways in this passage? First of all, it says that he took Jerusalem captive, but then at the end of the verse it says he took all these into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jerusalem means two things. It means, first of all, the political and economic and military leaders of Jerusalem, that is the political structure of the city, and it also means the physical city itself. Now I want you to notice also 2 Kings 14 verse 22, where the words built and restored, the very words are used so that you can see that build and restore, though related, mean different things. 2 Kings 14, verse 22, it's speaking about Azariah, and it says, He, that is Azariah, built Elath and restored it to Judah. What does that mean, that he built it and he restored it? It means that he gave it back to Judah for Judah to what? To rule over it. And so it says, He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. So any decree that fulfills this command to restore and build Jerusalem not only needs to include building the physical city, but also what? Restoring its political, military, and judicial institutions so that the city can function as a political an economic and social entity. Now there were four decrees that were given with regards to Jerusalem. Let's take a look at those four decrees that were given. The first decree was given by Cyrus, and that was given in the year 536 B.C. You can find it in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We're not going to read it. We don't have the time. And it's also found in 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 23. Now, if you read those verses, you'll discover that Cyrus only gave permission to build the temple. It had nothing to do with restoring and building Jerusalem. It had only to do with the temple, the religious institutions of Israel. Now, after this, um, after the captivity, 
uh, several thousand Jews, 50,000, actually returned to Jerusalem. And uh, taking advantage of this decree that Cyrus gave, they began building the temple. And they put the foundations of the temple down. But then there was opposition by the people of the land. And therefore, they said, it's not time for us to build the temple because we're having all sorts of problems. And so basically, they gave up the idea of building the temple. And all of them started uh, building their own houses and remodeling their ho own houses. They went to their own thing. You can find this in the book of Haggai, chapter 1. It says very clearly there what happened during this period. So then, a little bit later on, Darius the first who is Darius the Persian, not Darius the Mede, not the one who conquered Babylon, uh, but uh, this is Darius the Persian, he gave a decree renewing the decree that was given by Cyrus. This decree, you can read it. It's found in Ezra 6, verses 3 through 12, and it's also found in the books of Nehemiah and Haggai. And basically, Darius the first simply ratified and confirmed the decree that had been given by Cyrus. And this happened, as I mentioned, in the year 520. Nothing in this decree about restoring and building the city. The only thing that you will find in this decree was rebuilding the temple. And so this decree cannot fulfill the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. A third decree was given by King Artaxerxes I, also known as Longanimus. It was given in the fall of the year 457 B.C. And if you read Ezra 6, verses 14 and 15, it tells us that this was the third decree with regards to Jerusalem, which was given by Persian kings. It's the third decree. The first was Cyrus. The second was Darius. And it says in Ezra 6, 14 and 15 that this was the third decree that was given. I believe that this is the decree that fulfills the prophecy of the 70 week, the command to build and restore Jerusalem. And in a moment, we're going to go to that. But before we do, allow me to mention the fourth decree. It was given in the year 445 B.C. And most evangelical scholars today believe that this is the decree that marks the beginning of the 70-week prophecy. I disagree with this, because the year 445 is really not a new decree at all. You see, basically what happened is that after Artaxerxes gave his decree to restore and build Jerusalem, evil reports came from the people that lived in Judah. And they said, they wrote a letter to the king, and they said, King, the Jews are rebuilding the city, and they're rebuilding the wall. And these are a rebellious people. They have a bad history. And therefore, if you allow them to continue building, they're going to cause you all sorts of problems. And so the Bible tells us that Artaxerxes put his decree on hold until he could investigate the situation. And in the year 445, and by the way, in the handout that you have in your hands, you have all of the texts, you can check this out, uh, what Artaxerxes did after he checked out all of the information, he renewed the decree to restore and to build Jerusalem in the year 445 B.C. So this one does not fit. Now let's read the decree that does fit. 
It's the decree that is mentioned in Ezra chapter 7. Go with me to chapter 7 of Ezra, and you're going to find the words of Artaxerxes I. And uh, there's a very interesting little detail here. Here Artaxerxes is speaking, and he says, I issue a decree. That word decree is the identical word that is used in Daniel 9.25, the word command to restore and build Jerusalem. It's the identical Hebrew word, dabar. So would we suspect that this might be the decree if it's the same word command that you find in Daniel 9 verse 25? Absolutely. And so Artaxerxes says, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. He's saying to Ezra, anyone who wants to go to Jerusalem to restore and to build can now go. Now the question is, why do we take this decree of Artaxerxes in 457 BC as the decree that begins the 70 weeks? There are three reasons. The first reason is the one that I already mentioned. The word dabar, which is translated command in Daniel 9.25, is the very word that is used in Ezra 7 verse 13, where the king says, I make a decree. Same word. There's a second reason. None of the three other decrees would fit the chronology of the Messiah. Let's take a look at them. Let's suppose that we began the 70 weeks in the year 536 B.C. You go 70 weeks of years later, which is 490 years, what date would you end up? You would end up in the year 46 B.C. Could that be fulfilled with the Messiah? Absolutely not. Well, let's take the second decree, the decree of Darius, Darius the Persian, and see whether that one fits. You go from the year 520, 490 years forward. Where would that take you? It takes you to the year 30 B.C. Jesus hadn't even been born in the year 30 B.C. But let's take the one that was given in the year 445 B.C., the renewal of the decree by Artaxerxes. If you go from 445 B.C., forward, it takes you to the year 45 A.D. The problem is Jesus Christ was crucified in the year 31 A.D. And so taking this decree, it would be too late. Every scholar agrees that it would be too late. And so the first de two decrees would be too early, and the last decree would be too late. How many decrees does that leave us? It only leaves us one decree. Now, there's a third reason, and this is the most important reason, and that is that the decree of Artaxerxes in the year 457 is the only one that not only gives permission to build, but it also gives the authorization to restore the political structure of Hebrew society. Notice once again, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, 
and so forth. Verse 13, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, with regard to what? What were they going to consult about? With regard to what? To the law of your God, which is in your hand. In other words, was Artaxerxes saying that you can reestablish society in harmony with the law of God? Absolutely. But now let's go down to verses 25 and 26 where the reestablishment of the civil order of Israel is clearly mentioned. Chapter 7 and verses 25 and 26. It says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set what? Hmm, interesting. Would that have to do with restoring the city? Absolutely. Set magistrates and what? And judges. Is he authorizing to reestablish the civil order as well as building the city? Absolutely. That had been taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had taken away the sovereignty of Israel 19 years before the city was destroyed. It was actually withdrawn in 605. The city was destroyed in the year 586. So it says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river. All such, and listen to this, as know the laws of your God. By whose laws is this area going to be governed now? By the laws of God, the theocracy is being reestablished. And notice, and teach those who do not know them. And listen, Punitive measures could be taken against anyone who did not obey these laws because it says, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let what? Judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or what? Or imprisonment. Is Artaxerxes authorizing the civil order to be reestablished once again according to the laws of the God of Israel? Absolutely. It is the only decree that fits with the criteria, both chronologically and with the duties and the work that needed to be performed to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now somebody might be asking, Pastor Bohr, how accurate is the date 457 as the date for this decree of Artaxerxes? The fact is, the Bible says that this was given in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes. This date is one of the most firmly established dates of antiquity. In fact, there was a book written several years ago. It's called The Chronology of Ezra 7 by Siegfried Horn, an archaeologist, and by Kenneth Wood. And in this book, which unfortunately it's out of print, they draw on historical, biblical, archaeological and astronomical data to prove, shadow of a doubt, that 457, the fall of 457, was the date when Artaxerxes gave his decree to restore and to build Jerusalem. This date is set in history. It is a certain date. So we can know that the 70-week prophecy begins 
in the fall of the year 457. In a moment, you're going to see the reason why we know it was in the fall. Now, our study of the prophecy of the 70 weeks. It says there in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until when? Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be what? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the question is, why didn't, Dan, why didn't Gabriel just say 69 weeks? Why does he divide this period into seven weeks and 62 weeks, which we know are what? 69 weeks. He could have said 69. The reason why is because he actually is going to state that the first seven weeks, 49 years, have to do with the restoring and the building of what? Of Jerusalem. In fact, let's notice what we find in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now notice the last part of verse 25 says, the street, the street of what? Of Jerusalem, and by the way, that's a mistranslation. I won't get into that because that's another half an hour. The street shall be built again, and the wall, also a mistranslation, very clearly a mistranslation, and the wall even in what? Troublesome times. So during those seven weeks or 49 years, the restoring and the building of Jerusalem was going to be done, how? In very troublesome what? In very troublesome times. And if you read the book of Ezra, you will all sorts of opposition to the rebuilding and restoring of Jerusalem. Those who had stayed back in the land fought tooth and nail so that it wouldn't happen. They certainly were troublous times. But now notice that it says that from the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, which has to do with the reestablishment of the civil order and religious order of Israel. And after 62 weeks, you come to whom? You come to the arrival of the Messiah. Now the question is, what does the word Messiah mean? The Hebrew word Mashiach means anointed. It means anointed. And so we need to find out what was the act that anointed Jesus Christ. Now you notice that it says, until Messiah the Prince, right? So he has two names. He's called Messiah, and he's called what? The Prince. There's no doubt whatsoever that the prince is Jesus Christ. He's called by different names in the book of Daniel. He's called the prince of the host. We already studied that. He's called the prince of the covenant. He's called Michael, the great prince. And in Daniel 8, he's called the prince of princes. Do you know something very interesting? In the prophetic chapters of Daniel, excluding the historical chapters where it talks about the princes that served Nebuchadnezzar. But in the prophetic chapters of Daniel, every single time that the word prince appears, it applies to Jesus Christ. There is no exception to the rule. In other words, this prince is none other than whom? Than Jesus Christ. In fact, Isaiah also called him the prince of peace. And Peter, in the early chapters of Acts, 
called Jesus the prince twice. So there's no doubt whatsoever about who this Messiah, the prince, is. Now the question is, the word Messiah means anointed. When was Jesus anointed? Well, let's go to John chapter 1 and verse 32. John chapter 1 and verse 32. Here it's speaking about the baptism of Jesus, which marks the beginning of his ministry. John 1 and verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Is this referring to the baptism of Jesus when the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus? Absolutely. Now, I want us to go down to verse 40, 41. Just a few verses after this, Andrew speaks to his brother Peter, and I want you to notice what Andrew says to Peter. This is immediately after it speaks about the Holy Spirit, John speaking about the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ. It says in verse 41, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the... Interesting. Same word. Right after the baptism of Jesus, we have found the Messiah. And now listen what it continues saying. We have found the Messiah, which is translated what? The Christ. You see, in Greek, the word Christ is exactly equivalent to Messiah. Have you ever heard the word christened? It comes from Christened. It means to anoint, doesn't it? So Christ means the same as Messiah, the anointing. Immediately after the baptism of Jesus, we find Andrew saying to Peter, we have found the anointed one. Now notice Luke 4 and verse 14. We're still talking about Messiah, the prince. Luke 4 and verse 14. It says here, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. How did he return to Galilee? In what? In the power of the Spirit he returned to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Now, what comes immediately before this text? If you look in Luke 3, it describes the baptism of Jesus. Then chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, describe the temptations of Jesus. And then the last part of chapter 4 describes the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And it says, after his baptism, after the temptations, when he begins his ministry, it tells us that he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now notice with what words Jesus began his ministry. It's in the synagogue in Nazareth. Notice Luke chapter 4 and verses 18 and 19. Here Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is what? Is upon me, because he has what? When did Jesus receive the Holy Spirit? When he was what? Baptized. So it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So when was Jesus anointed as the Messiah? 
he was anointed as the Messiah when he received the Holy Spirit. And when did that take place? At his baptism. If anybody has any doubt, let's read Acts chapter 10 and verses 36 to 38. Acts chapter 10 and verses 36 to 38. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began where? From Galilee, after the baptism which John preached. How God, what? There's the key word. Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? With the Holy Spirit and with power. When was Jesus anointed with Holy Spirit and with power? At the moment of his what? Of his baptism. And so it says here in verse 37, that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So when is the moment that the 69 weeks come to an end? It's when Jesus becomes what? The anointed one. And that refers to his what? To his baptism. Now do we have a date for the baptism of Christ? We sure do. Luke chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. This date refers to the year 27 A.D. Now I want you to notice... It gives us several historical markers. I think God wants us to know when this date is. Because notice all the historical markers that God gives. Luke 3, 1 and 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, we know that this is the year 27 AD, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Does God give us all kinds of historical markers here? He most certainly does. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and then Jesus is baptized. This is the year 27 AD, when Jesus begins his ministry. Now let me ask you, to whom did Jesus preach? Jesus went all over the world and preached to the Gentiles, didn't he? Who did he preach to only? To the Jews. Why? Because the prophecy of the 70 weeks says 70 weeks are determined for your city and your people. So Jesus had to preach to the Jews until this time was finished. Are you with me? Notice what we find in Matthew 10, 5 and 6. It's explicit. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These 12... Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. When the 70 weeks ended, is that when the gospel was supposed to go to the Gentiles, according to what we studied this morning? When, the, when at last he sent his son and they rejected the son? Is that when the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles, the kingdom taken from you and given to a nation that produces the fruits thereof? Yes. But at this point... The 70 weeks had not ended. So what is the focus of the ministry of Jesus? It says, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. 
But go rather where? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because the 70 weeks were not up, and the 70 weeks were for the city and the, for the people of Daniel. Are you with me? How the Bible harmonizes all these things is simply marvelous. Now let's go on in our study. It says in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, Daniel 9 verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, notice it doesn't specify when after, it simply says after the 62 weeks, at some point, Messiah shall be what? Cut off, but not for himself. Now let's go to Isaiah 53 and verse 5 to see if this is an accurate statement. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Did Jesus die for himself? No, he didn't die for himself. Notice Isaiah 53 and verse 5. It says here, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So the suffering and death of Jesus, was it for himself? No, it was for us. Now what does the expression cut off mean? It says the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. We notice that what Jesus did, he did for us. Well, what does cut off mean? Well, Isaiah 53, which is that great messianic prophecy, verse 8 tells us what it means to cut off. Speaking about the Messiah, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was what? Interesting. He was cut off from the land of the what? Of the living. Does that mean that he, was, that he died? Does cut off mean that he died? Yes. He was cut off from the land of the what? Of the living. Did he do it for himself? No, because it continues saying, for what? For the transgression of my people, he was what? He was stricken. Did Jesus do this for himself? No. Was he cut off or did he die? He most certainly did. Who fulfills this specification where it says that after 62 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off, that is, he would be killed, but not what? But not for himself, but for others. There's only one. It has to be Jesus Christ, because the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53 is in perfect harmony with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Now let's go on to the next phrase. It says... In Daniel 9, verse 26, after speaking about the cutting off of Messiah the Prince, not for himself, after his death, it says, listen carefully, and the people of the Prince, who do you think this Prince is? Is there any change between the, between the previous phrase and this one to indicate that this is a different Prince? Evangelical scholars today say that this is the, this is the Antichrist Prince. There's no evidence in the sequence of this prophecy that this is some kind of antichrist prince who is going to rise in the future. Notice it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will what? Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Question, was Jerusalem going to be destroyed again? This is interesting because God had told Daniel, you know, Jerusalem is going to be what? Restored and what? Built. But then after 69 weeks, the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to come. 
And after, at some points, after the 69 weeks, the Messiah is going to be cut off, cut off, and he's not cut off for himself. And then he says, the sanctuary and the city are going to be destroyed again. Are you following me or not? They're going to be destroyed again. Now, does the cutting off of the Messiah have anything to do with the destruction of the city? It most certainly does. Messiah's cut off, not for himself, and then it speaks about what? It speaks about the destruction of the city. And it continues saying, once again, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it, that is of the city and the sanctuary, shall be with a what? A flood. In scripture, invasions of armies are represented by the flood. For example, read Isaiah 8, 7 and 8. It's not on your list, but you might want to write it down. Isaiah 8, verses 7 and 8. And then it continues saying, till the end of the war, here comes a key word. What's the key word? Desolations. Don't forget that word. Desolations are what? Are determined. Now, we need to interpret who this prince is. There are three views concerning the prince. The first view is the traditional Seventh-day Adventist view of the prince. Basically, the idea is that the prince is Titus. And the people of the prince are the, are the Roman armies. That's the traditional point of view. A second view is that the prince is a nasty antichrist that is going to arise in the future after the rapture of the church. That does not fit at all, as we're going to study along the 70 weeks. The third view is the one that I espouse, and that is that the prince is Jesus, and the people of the prince are the Jews. And you see, pastor, that doesn't fit. Well, let's examine it to see if it does fit. First of all, let's talk about view number one. Listen carefully. View number one is that the prince is Titus and the people of the prince are the Roman armies. This view is not sustainable. And you say, why is it not sustainable? For the simple reason that in verse 27, we are told that that prince would do three things. What would he do? First of all, he would confirm the covenant with many for one week. Did Titus do that? Did Titus confirm a covenant with, with Israel for the last week? No, he lived in the year 70. Secondly, in the midst of the last week, he would cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Did Titus do that? He did cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, but in the year 70, not in the middle of the last week. And then finally, he would make Jerusalem desolate. That's the only one that fits. Are you understanding me? And so Titus does not fit because the people of the prince would actually be those, or the prince of the people, rather, would confirm the covenant for a week. In the midst of the last week, he would cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And in the third place, his death would lead to the desolation of Jerusalem. Now the question is, who is this prince and who are the people of the prince? You're saying, Pastor Bohr, you're a little bit crazy. You're saying that the Jews destroyed their city? The people of the prince destroyed Jerusalem? That's exactly what I'm saying. Let me talk first of all to provide you with an analogy. What happened with the first destruction of Jerusalem? Let me ask you, who destroyed Jerusalem the first time? 
There's three explanations given in the Bible. I'm going to give you only the references. They might be, they're probably on your list. Daniel 9, verse 14, I'll quote. It says, the Lord brought this disaster upon us. So who caused the first destruction of Jerusalem? The Lord. Second Chronicles 36, verses 17 to 20 says that God used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the city of Jerusalem. It says, in fact, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. And Daniel 9, 11, and verses 14 and 15 says very clearly that it was Israel's sins that brought the destruction of Jerusalem. So the question is, who destroyed Jerusalem? Was it God, was it Nebuchadnezzar, or was it the people? <laughs> All of the above. You see, the people, the rebellion of the people, led God to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish the people for the rebellion. Are you understanding me or not? In fact, the Bible says this. Notice what Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah. This is in Jeremiah 38 and verses 21 and 23. Jeremiah 38, verse 21 and verse 23. Jeremiah is saying, submit to the king of Babylon or else. Notice. But if you refuse to surrender, he says to King Zedekiah, if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. You shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Who was going to cause the city to be burned with fire? Zedekiah, the king. Why? Because he was not obeying the Lord, he was being rebellious, and he was not subjecting himself to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's talk about the second destruction of Jerusalem. Did you notice that each time that the destruction of Jerusalem is addressed in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, there's something that the Messiah did immediately before. He's cut off, and Jerusalem is destroyed. Then it says he causes the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and once again, Jerusalem is destroyed. Does the rejection of the Messiah and the death of the Messiah have anything to do with the destruction of Jerusalem? Yeah. Absolutely. Go with me to Psalm 118 and verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118 is a messianic prophecy. Notice what it says. The stone which the builders rejected, you immediately recognize this as a messianic prophecy, right? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, to whom does this prophecy appear? Who was uh, apply? Is, uh, is this referring just to anyone, or is it referring to Jesus Christ as the Messiah? It's referring to the Messiah. Notice Matthew 21 and verse 42. Jesus quotes this verse. He's saying, this psalm belongs to me. Matthew 21 and verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. To whom does Jesus apply this prophecy of Psalm 118? He applies it to himself. Do you know that a little bit, uh, a little bit later on in this psalm, in verse 26, we find a very interesting verse that was sung, listen carefully, it was sung by those who were accompanying Jesus in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You see, it says, the prince 
The people of the prince who is what? Who is to come. Now, let's notice that expression, who is to come. Go with me to Psalm 118, verse 26. We've already shown that this is a messianic psalm. The people were singing, what? Blessed is he who what? Who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So who is it that comes in the name of the Lord, according to Psalm 118? It is none other than Jesus Christ. Now let's go to an interesting passage that puts all of this together. Luke 19 and verses 37 to 44. And I want you to see that there are three things in this passage, three key things. Luke 19 verses 37 through 44. Three main ideas. The first idea is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the people are singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the prince who is to come. The second idea is that Jesus speaks about his rejection by the Jewish nation. And the third idea is that Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Three ideas. First idea, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. They sing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Second idea, Jesus is rejected. Third idea, Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's read this passage, Luke 19, 37 to 44. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Is this the Prince who is to come? Absolutely. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And now notice, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Is Jesus speaking about his rejection by the city of Jerusalem? He most certainly is. And what is the result going to be? Because the Jewish nation has rejected him, notice what we find in verse 43. The destruction is spoken of. For days will come upon you when your enemies will what? Will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And what is the reason why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Who caused the destruction of Jerusalem? Titus? Would Titus have destroyed Jerusalem if the people were faithful? No. Would God have destroyed Jerusalem if the people had been faithful? Absolutely not. So who brought destruction upon Jerusalem? You know, there's a text in the Old Testament where God says, Ephraim or Israel, you have destroyed yourself. What is it that led to this destruction of Jerusalem? It was the rejection of the Messiah by the people. Now let's review something that we studied this morning. You remember Matthew chapter 21, Jesus arrived in the temple, right? And then you have the fig tree episode. Everything he deals with, after Matthew 21, has to do with the history and the rebellion of the Jewish nation. The fig tree episode that has no fruit. 
Jesus curses the fig tree, and it dries up from the roots. And Jesus says, you're never going to produce fruit ever again. And it represents the Jewish theocracy as a nation. It's not saying that all Jews are lost. It's talking about the Jewish theocracy as God's chosen vessel to proclaim the gospel. You remember also the parable of the vineyard workers? The three stages there, he sends messengers, they reject them. So he sends more messengers, and they reject them. And then he says, last of all, I'm going to send what? I'm going to send my son. And what did they do? They rejected him as well. And then Jesus, after he tells this parable, we find Jesus saying, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a nation that produces the fruits thereof. Who is that nation that produces the fruits thereof? It'll become absolutely clear if it isn't already tomorrow when we deal with the second part of the 70 weeks that it has to do with the preaching of the gospel in the Gentile world. And then you notice that after he gives the parable of the vineyard workers, he pronounces the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, fill up the cup, the cup is full. But as we notice, Jesus said, I'm still going to send you wise men, and I'm still going to send you prophets. Because the 70 weeks don't end when Jesus is rejected. They end three and a half years later. Are you with me or not? So there's still three and a half years of grace for the Hebrew nation, even after this. And then Jesus, after he pronounces the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 38, he departs the temple. The Shekinah is departing the temple, and he says, Your house is left unto you what? Is that a word that's used in Daniel chapter 9? Absolutely. Your house is left unto you desolate. In other words, the Shekinah has abandoned the temple. And now where does go, Jesus go to sit? Um, just like in the first destruction, he goes to sit on the Mount of Olives, and what does he begin talking about? He begins talking about the destruction of what? Of Jerusalem. Because of the rejection of the Messiah. Are you following me or not? Is this prophecy talking about some future antichrist after the rapture? Listen carefully to what the Christian world has done. First of all, they have absolved the Jewish nation from the guilt of the death of the Messiah. And how have they done that? They have done that by projecting this prophecy to a future Antichrist after the rapture. So the Jewish nation has nothing to do with the fulfillment of the rejection of the Messiah. The second thing that they have done is by saying that the prophecy of the little horn applies to the future Antichrist, they have absolved the Roman Catholic Church from the guilt of killing the body of Jesus Christ, his church. And so basically by directing these prophecies to the future, they have lost sight of the guilt of the Jewish nation as a nation and the guilt of the Roman Catholic papacy in persecuting the saints of the Most High because they're projecting these things to the future and they do not see how these things have been fulfilled in the past. Notice how Ellen White described the destruction of Jerusalem, the reason in Great Controversy, page 35, the Jews had forged their own fetters. What had the Jews done? They had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance. In the utter destruction that befell them as a nation, and in all the woes that followed them in their dispersion, 
they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had sown. Who destroyed Jerusalem? They did by rejecting the Messiah, says the prophet. Now she quotes that verse. It's found in Hosea 13, verse 9. Says the prophet, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Their sufferings, now listen carefully, their sufferings are often represented as a punishment visited upon them by the direct decree of God. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work by stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, listen carefully, the Jews had caused the protection of God to be withdrawn from them, and Satan was permitted to rule them according to his will. So which of the three options makes more sense? Was it Titus and, and the armies of Rome? No. Is it some future antichrist? No. Who is it referring to? The people of the prince are the Jews, the people of Jesus Christ, who brought rejection against the city for the rejection of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org dot org.